KBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We're glad to have you with us for the start of another week here on Political Rewind. Uh, We've got a great panel for you today. Um, We're going to talk to uh, State Senator Jen Jordan. She is a Democrat who represents uh, areas. I always get your district wrong. You've got some of Atlanta, but you go up into the suburbs a bit, right? That's right. Like cross into Cobb County, Vinings, and Smyrna, but then it swings back up and grabs Chastain Park and um, Sandy Springs. Thank you. I I promise that next year I won't make you know make that mistake. Well, then they're going to redraw the district. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. Mayor Rusty Paul is uh, with us uh, today. Uh, he, of course, is the mayor of Sandy Springs, longtime activist in uh, community affairs and Republican Party politics. Here, former state chair of the Georgia Republican Party. Uh, worked in Washington for the Department of Housing and Urban Development, was close to uh, Jack Kemp, uh, and worked, uh, Rusty and I first, I've mentioned this on the show before, we first got to know each other when you were out on the, I think basically when you were chair of the party, but we really got to know each other much better when I was out covering Jack Kemp right. and you were on some of the trips right. with us. I did, uh, I did a lot of advance work for him, both uh, in the campaign and then when we were at HUD. One of the great guys in American politics. I mean, beyond just some of his politics, which were usually very bipartisan, just a wonderful human being as well. And, of course, it's Monday, which means Jim Galloway, the lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is here with us. You read him on Wednesdays and Sundays, and he oversees the AJC's uh, Political Insider blog. You have your column idea for Wednesday? Well, I'm I'm headed over to the Capitol after we finish this to talk to Tim Eccles Uh, about electric vehicles. um, You know what? I think we're going to... Try to get Tim in here tomorrow because uh, Georgia Powers, uh, the rate hike uh, case comes up tomorrow morning mm-hmm. in the PSC, and uh, um, we're trying to get Tim to come over and explain how the PSC is going to deal with it. We'll talk about that a little more as the show goes on. And Kyle Hayes, uh, who is the uh, founder and uh, one of the principals in Peach Pod, joins us from the NPR studios in Washington. You're up there, aren't you, Kyle? I know we were having a little trouble getting you into the loop a few minutes ago. I am, Bill. Good. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, sure. Uh, always like to give people a chance to promote what they're doing. Your most recent podcast is? We recently talked to Deborah Gonzalez. She's a candidate for district attorney in the Athens, Clark, and Oconee County areas. But even if you're not from that area, if you're somebody who's interested in uh, criminal justice reforms and the movement among progressive prosecutors. This is an interesting look at a candidate who is running sort of under that umbrella. I'm, I'm glad you explained that because when I saw that pop up on your podcast, I wondered why that choice was made. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kyle, send me a link when you, when you can. Well, do. Oh, here. We like to make matches here at uh, Political <laughs> By the way, Rusty Paul, as long as we're talking um, about other activities that people are involved with um, besides the talk on Political Rewind. You, you've now got that remarkable performing arts center up there, which was almost the venue for the Democratic <laughs> presidential yeah, debate. Yeah, within seconds, I understand, before it was snatched. <laughs> but now you're adding another component, the second phase of what, a cultural arts center? We're having a, it, it's much smaller, much smaller in size. It's about a 20,000-square-foot building, uh, about a block and a half from our current facility. Uh, we have the only Anne Frank exhibit outside of Amsterdam in Sandy Springs, and we're working with the State Holocaust Commission to put it – it's right now in – a strip shopping center, yeah. not the best circumstances. It's, it's, it's right off, right off KSU campus, right? right no, it's, no, no, it's, no, it's right on Roswell Road yeah. in Sandy Springs. Oh, okay. yeah. right? uh, yeah. And so it's not in a very good location. There are no elevators. It's on the second floor. And, and that's something that deserves uh, a, a better facility and an opportunity for more people to visit because that, that the story, obviously, of Anne Frank – is read by every uh, eighth grader in, in the country, and we, uh, we think that it will be a great addition to our city and a real opportunity to teach people uh, about the consequences of hate. Okay, right. 
Well, what's the what's the timetable? Well, uh, we're the State Holocaust Commission is out uh, in a fundraising mode right now to be able to fund what it needs. It's got a it's got a charge from the state legislature to build a Holocaust State Holocaust Memorial, and so we're working with them on getting all these pieces and things in place. We're hoping that that's done by. The early part of 2020, and I'd like to be under construction hopefully by the fall of, okay. of next year. Wow. Ambitious planning up there in Sandy Springs these days. Well, small thinking never generates great results. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's go ahead and start talking. Um, uh, Jim, right now, uh, we've, we've been following a story that developed this morning and this afternoon, and we now have at least a temporary outcome. The state was supposed to start purging up to 300,000 voters off the rolls uh, tonight. It, the, the, the purges were based on either people having moved out of the state or the use it or lose it provision, which says you've had to have voted uh, within the past, I think, seven years or something, mm-hmm. or else you would automatically lose the privilege. That law has been changed. You now get notified in a different way before you're purged. But Fair Fight Action, Stacey Abrams' organization, went into court today saying, stop this purge of 120,000, the use it or lose it names. Right, right. Uh, 120,000 uh, uh, inactive voters. Uh, they, they went to the same same attorney, uh, judge that they've got a, a, a case pending, another case pending. Steve Jones, district Steve court Jones. judge. Yeah. And, and from what I understand it is, the judge has just ordered that the purge not go through as tonight, as, as was planned, but, it, but delayed until a full hearing can be held on Thursday. Um, Jen, can you help um, explain? You, the, there is new legislation which has changed a bit how people are purged on the basis of use it or lose it, or new law, right, that you passed this last session. Right, and it uh, comes from House <clears throat> Bill 316. And basically, purge laws use inactivity kind of as a proxy for, for saying people have moved out of the state. Um, but with respect to 316, what we did is, long story short, instead of seven years of inactivity or no contact, um, it's expanded it to nine years. And so what Fairified Action is saying is that approximately 120,000 of these voters that were supposed to be purged fall in the seven-year window, but not in the nine-year. So this kind of this two-year span um, that was affected by the new law. Um, Kyle, voter purges always sound on the surface as if there might be something um, unethical, some attempt to suppress the vote, and, and in some cases... There may very well be. But we should always remember that these voter purges are mandated by federal law, right? Well, right. And their defenders will say that this is basically a list maintenance exercise that the state has an interest in keeping its voting list up to date. Um, sometimes people will move out of the state or, or, or if they die or something, they obviously the state needs to know that there's been a change there. I think there is concern from critics of these uh, purges that these that the communication that happens between the state and the person who might lose their voter registration is inadequate and that there needs to be more safeguards for people so that they don't find out before it's too late that they can't vote in an upcoming election. Did, am I, was that not part of the legislation that that required more, uh, better notification? Right. It, it required more notification. Yeah. But if the whole point is you're sending the notification to, to the, the wrong, wrong address. address in the first yeah. place, <laughs> and this tends to be a transient population. And we've even heard stories lately of those that are homeless, um, you know, vets living on the street, people who are voters who, where do they even get the notification at to actually be able to contact the secretary? And, of State? and 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 if you're a voter and you move within a county, your your registration is supposed to follow you, right. correct? It is within the county. But what we've seen is if you get purged and you're not aware of it, you show up on election day and you go in there, and really what it does is it results in complete disenfranchisement of that voter. Because whether you do a provisional or not, obviously you're not registered. Mm. And at that point in time, your vote gets thrown out. The question is what, and we'll learn more about this because clearly there are reporters down there who've covered this uh, action in court today. What exactly Judge Jones hopes can be accomplished but between now and Thursday in terms of that? Well, if, if, if nothing else, generally speaking, I mean, a, a, a judge who will grant an emergency TRO uh, kind of understands that there's at least a valid argument to be mm-hmm. made. 
Yeah, which doesn't mean necessarily that the purge will be allowed to move forward on Thursday, perhaps, that we may... We don't know. Okay, we just don't know what's going to happen. Rusty, you you just cannot, especially these days, take concerns about partisanship out of any issue that relates to voting. No, you can't. And, uh, you know, I've, I've spent... You know, December 7th of, uh, was the, marked the 42nd year of my involvement in elective office. And I have watched politicians over those 42 years try and manipulate the system every way possible, both sides. Both sides try to manipulate to their advantage. And one of the things that I've figured out that on Election Day, I don't care how you've manipulated them, those voters are showing up and they're going to work their will. Uh, and uh, so all these, you know, it's not to say that the voter list isn't, isn't an important discussion to have and how you maintain it. Before I, I mean, you know, I do politics more as a, ha- as a, as a hobby than anything else. And I actually <laughs> have a real life out there and it's in the advertising marketing world. And uh, most, you judge most of your mailing lists that you see about a 20% deterioration of the accuracy of that list every year. So they, they are, they, the theory is after five years, that list is largely useless. And unless you're re up, you know re uh, uh, upping the the getting the updates on addresses and phone numbers and so on, same way with voting files. Uh, nobody sends in a notice that I've just moved to California uh, when they leave the state. So if you don't purge it on a on a regular basis, and we can debate about what regular is, you end up with a list that's so useless yeah. that it doesn't really tell you who can vote and who can't. So, but I understand the sensitivity of it. I think nine years is a good good number. Uh, I don't know, you know, but you whatever the number is, you're just going to be pulling out of the air. Um, Kyle, there's a corollary story in Wisconsin right now. There's a fight going on over voter purges as well. The uh, Democrats up there are pushing hard to uh, 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 overturn a decision by the state to purge something like 234,000 voters who didn't respond within, in their law, 30 days to letters seeking to confirm their addresses. And that case is expected to go all the way to the state Supreme Court up there, which is controlled by conservatives. But here's another state, and there's a, obviously, Wisconsin is about as important a swing state in the 2020 elections as we could have. So, we're seeing this pop up in other states as well, Kyle. We are. In fact, the constitutionality of this provision has been a question before the U.S. Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. If I'm remembering correctly, I believe it was a case in Ohio yeah, yeah, where was. the U.S. Yep. Supreme Court upheld the purge process that they had. It's interesting, in the fair fight filing, they actually nod to the Ohio case, but they say that the Ohio case dealt with a federal law and not a constitutional provision, and that people who challenge these, I don't know if this is this... <clears throat> the subject of the challenge in Wisconsin, but central to the idea in Fair Fight's challenge here is that this is a First Amendment violation and that people should not lose the right to vote simply because they did not exercise it. Um, But it is going to be an issue. I mean, really, the mechanics of everything with voting are going to be an issue as we get closer to Election Day in 2020, where it's expected to be close in a lot of places like Wisconsin. Yeah, I think we're going to be talking about voter stories for all of next year. Jen, one of the reasons it's so important in Wisconsin is we have to remember that Trump won Wisconsin by just 23,000 votes. So a purge of 200 plus thousand conducted by Republican officials in the state, you would want to be careful. You'd want to watch that pretty carefully. Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, I think we all know that this is going to come down to the Electoral College and those really close states last time. Um, It's going to be incredibly important to make sure that if you are registered to vote and you should vote, you should be able to. All right, let's move on. we got another big voter story in the news. Jim, your colleagues at the paper did some remarkable reporting, uh, an investigation that clearly uh, it consumed an awful lot of their time, a deep data dive by uh, Mark Nisi and his Nick Thiem. Right. Um, essentially, they did a data analysis of the way in which the distance you have to travel to get to a polling place 
it has a corollary in terms of whether you are likely to vote or not. And they looked at very specific poll closures in Georgia, distances that people were asked to travel and came up with some pretty interesting yeah, conclusions. They, 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 they mapped the residences of 7 million voters and then crossed that with, with, the, uh, with the polling locations in 2012 and then in 2018. Uh, we, we'd, uh, be, in, in those six years, you saw 8% of uh, polling places closed, 40% moved. And the idea here is, is, one, is, is to figure out whether the distance that voters traveled increased or decreased and what impact it had on their likelihood of vote, uh, to vote. And it was uh, – and, and what, what they found was that, uh, that uh, the – your – not voting due to travel concerns increased by fourfold, and uh, the if if you had still had all of those polling places back to where they were and and hadn't closed any, the the somewhere in the the voter voter turnout would have been one point two to one point eight percent higher. Yeah, and it disproportionately it did disproportionately affect African American voters. Rusty, let's let me repeat what Jim just said. They determined. That overall turnout would have been 1.2 to 1.8 percent higher, based on the fact that um, people people didn't vote because they had to travel so far. Now, they also are very careful to point out in this piece that this would not have affected the outcome of the gubernatorial election, probably not even enough to have gotten Stacey Abrams into a runoff. So they're not contending that it changed the election. But they are trying to ascertain something that we all look at all the time. What's the effect of, of counties that close increasingly polling places right. around the counties? No, it, it's, it's a challenge because what happens is voter uh, registration offices, the voter uh, in, in every county, has to go out and find locations. Uh, sometimes during an election, those locations aren't available. And so they have to move them. It's just it's just a fact of life. And and sometimes they're broken down. And and there's a lot of reasons why that the voting uh, voting places change. Uh, and uh, it is unfortunate because you know if all of a sudden I show up at Riverwood High School to vote and there's nobody there to take my vote and it it, it, it it's a challenge. But it's like uh, when we held our last city election, we the cost of these elections are also extremely high. You got to hire people, you got to have machines and everything. And what we did is we said, all right, we're going to create one polling place in the center part of the city, and everybody will vote there because of the cost and the fact that we couldn't get some of the places that we normally would have elections. And then uh, obviously somebody filed a complaint with the state. Board of Elections that we were trying to suppress voting. It wasn't so much an effort to suppress voting. It was to be able to be able to hold an election in an affordable way uh, and give everybody reasonable, equal access to the voting. How, how much cheaper was it to c- consolidate that well, way? Well, Fulton County, I can't remember the numbers right off the top of my head, but we asked Fulton County, we, we would con- contract with them to hold the election. Sure. The cost was extraordinary. And so we went out and rented the equipment and set up uh, in in the center part of the city uh, a, a, po- a polling location, and we used old scantrons <laughs> to count the votes, and they had to hand feed each one of them <laughs> one at a time. Uh, so it's a challenge to try and hold elections. There's a lot. It's a lot more complicated. There's no question that if you've got to go further to vote, uh, it's going to have an impact. But the challenge is for these local elected officials, where can I hold the elections? And, and when you've got a county like Fulton, where you've got over 2,000 locations, you've got to set up and operate. And some of them are in schools, some of them are in libraries, some of them are in churches. And they just may not be available this time to be able to do it. And you've got to move them. So uh, it's the facts of life. Jen, um, in addition to finding that this notion that, that, that the distances to a polling place, they averaged, uh, they doubled between 2012 and 2018. What's interesting about that is you, you think about probably I first thought about, well, rural Georgia. And there are a lot of examples of people having to travel much greater distance in rural Georgia. But, you know, when you talk about Rusty having one central polling place in Sandy Springs, that was – there's issues in, in in metro Atlanta as well because, if nothing else, traffic that makes it more difficult right. to get to a polling traffic, place. Traffic, transit issues. Yeah. I mean, but – and I'll take everything that um, the mayor said and say, okay, we'll kind of accept that. It is complicated. It is expensive. 
it's tough, right? But the issue is, is that since Shelby versus Holder in 2013, when the Supreme Court said, you know, you don't have to pre-clear um, any of this stuff anymore, Georgia, since that point, we've had 214 precinct closures. Um, when prior to that, we didn't see that. So it's, and if you actually look at and do the analysis in terms of voters impacted by and how far away, um, it basically impacted white and black voters voters kind of the same. So you have to, that's the issue is that since 2013, and look, 2013, we were using uh, machines, you know, it's not like it was like 1960 or 50 or anything. So you you do have to kind of start to ask if there's something more going on. And you you do see some strategies. Uh, uh, A lot of uh, a lot of poll closings are uh, being uh, being uh, it's it's not affordability. Mm -hmm. It's uh, ADA compliance. Mm -hmm. That is that has become a, a kind of an entry point for 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 closing polling stations. Right now, there's a it's it's it, there's a lot of factors that and and you know I, I I've been in Fulton County for quite a while. I I don't think the Fulton County Board of Registrars is trying to set up polling locations in a way that help Republicans, uh, but they have real complicated situations like ADA uh, access. Uh, you know. The building's just simply not available that day, and you've got to move it. There's a lot of factors that go into these decisions, and uh, I, I'm just glad that I'm not on the voter registration board because it's a it, it's a lot of complicated work that has to be done to set these polling places up. Uh, Kyle, uh, Jen Jordan mentioned uh, the uh, Supreme Court decision, Shelby County versus Holder, which ended preclearance of voting matters for many states, Georgia, of course, being one. Um, we now had the House pass a measure that would restore preclearance, not in a in a uniform, not in a um, in an ongoing way, a permanent way for any given state, but rather would establish preclearance based on a number of criteria: the number of voter complaints over a period of time. So it would be a, a it would be more flexible, and and the House passed that bill. Uh, at a point where they were being told that they thought this might might uh, withstand Supreme Court scrutiny, it might it might get away from the problem the Supreme Court found. But this isn't going to pass in the Senate, Kyle. It seems unlikely that it would pass in the Senate. I think the thing to look forward to is does the Democratic Party establish this as a plank of their platform if Democrats were to win? control of the Senate and the presidency after the 2020 elections. But I think if you do see that come back into effect, it it certainly opens up an opportunity for the state to play a greater role in when issues like precinct closures or redistricting or the way in which elections are structured, when those things are flagged by the federal government and preclearance, I think the state has to play a greater role in providing the funding and resources necessary to, for instance, make sure that some of these precincts don't have to close or for ones that don't currently meet ADA regulations, that they can be brought up to code and and meet the regulations there. So I think that if this policy does eventually come back, it does sort of call the state to the table, too, to say, how can we make sure that the access, that access to voting is maintained well, Jen, under federal law? I'm sort of smiling at that because there's something of an irony there. Uh, the polling, the, the closures in, say, Randolph County and others, which uh, the national media picked up on, were blamed on Brian Kemp, uh, even though these were county-by-county county decisions uh, now Kyle is suggesting that, in fact, the state should get involved in these decisions. Well, it's you know, what's interesting about this study is that one of the concerns that the, the, the majority in the Supreme Court had in Shelby County versus Holder was that why are we making these states continue to do this? This is, you know, there's no evidence that they are, um, you know, doing anything that, that is actually impacting um, black voter turnout or, or particularly trying to keep minorities from voting. Um, but when you have studies like this that the AJC has done, this is that's the data, actually this, the data. Yeah, this is the data that they're looking for. But but to your point on, on uh, to Kyle's point on, on state funding, it's you know that's actually that 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 does make a good deal of sense sure. of uh, treating treating voting with uh, something like you treat education, that you have to have a that that uh, a, a minimum amount of, of of state funding will ensure kind of uniformity yeah. from from Rusty, county to county. What do you think as a mayor? Well, you know. 
historically, Sandy Springs is historically significant. We were the first southern uh, municipality exempted from the voting rights bill before the Holder-Shelby uh, ruling because we had no history of discrimination. We were a new city. And the Justice Department said, well, there's no history of discrimination, so therefore you're exempt. The, cha- the problem I have with this, uh, more so than anything else, is it, it creates a, a, a very low threshold to get you into the preclearance category. Uh, you know, complaints, uh, violations that are poorly described. It, basically what they're going to end up doing under the bill as it's currently drawn is you'll, pre- you'll have to preclear the whole country. I mean, that you can, you can go in and create the circumstances that they're asking to be met in any jurisdiction, in any place in this country. So an organized effort with complaints and so on will, will, will put you into a preclearance situation. And uh, I think that's a, the, the problem with this bill. There, there, there's really three, three kinds of bills. One is to make law. One is to make a point, And the other is to get reelected. And this is one of those bills designed to try and get a point across that uh, we want to get certain people exercised about this issue and then we'll, we'll uh, use it for so, electoral pu- purposes. So I would imagine that the argument on the other side of that is that this is a law to protect the rights of all people to vote. No, well, it, 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 that, that can be done without preclearance. Okay. I mean, the preclearance process, uh, if you want to put the whole country under preclearance, just say, we're going to we're going to have everybody pre-cleared but this the way that the way it's done my objection is not necessarily to pre-clearance it's just simply the threshold to get you in there it, the the bar is so low that you're going to have it whether you deserve it or not okay uh, i want to ask one last story we got to get to a break maybe one of you on the panel can answer this for me because i realize i don't know the answer on what basis were georgia and the other states that were placed under pre-clearance protection by the Justice Department. How were those states determined prior to Shelby versus uh, Holder? I'm not sure I know the answer uh, to that. A, a history of racial discrimination. Yeah, based, okay, but okay. It was a 65 Voting Act that, that defined these states as having a pattern of voter discrimination against minorities. And then so to rectify that, uh, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 right. basically said these states and all the jurisdictions therein have to be well, but not, not, all, not all were not all were deep South states. No. There were a few, no. a few others. Yeah. But then that's my then I ask that, Jen, because isn't that the answer to what Rusty Paul is suggesting? If they're based on a pattern of discrimination and it was appropriate, then you wouldn't have to cover the whole country under the new law well, or the new bill, which hasn't gone anywhere in the Senate yet. So, so to be fair, the law is very vague. And that is what a lot of the critics of the law say, is that it doesn't really lay out. Um, and you it mean really, the new bill that the, new the bill, House the just new passed? Bill that That's the House. a law. Okay. And also, one of the reasons that, um, you know, in Shelby County, you know, preclearance got thrown out is because kind of lack of an evidentiary foundation right now. So the question is in terms of what the House considered in making this bill, and that's what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Like, what's the basis for this bill? There actually has to be evidence, hearings. There has to be, right. that's part of the congressional record, to sure. actually justify congressional action in an area that is usually reserved for the states. Okay. And I'm not going to argue that voting discrimination doesn't go on. It, it definitely does. The question is, this bill doesn't address that problem okay. because it is so broad that it yeah. brings everybody on there, so you're not really dealing with the problem. Fair enough. All right, let's do this. Let's get a break out of the way. And uh, when we come back, we've got a lot more we want to talk about on today's Political Rewind. I'm Noelle King. Over the past year, you listened as news broke and developed. You kept up with it all because being informed is important to you. And maybe as the stories changed, you did too. You heard new angles and voices. You understood. You grew. There will be more to learn in the new year, and we'll explore it all together. So please make a year-end gift now, because when we grow, you do too. Donate online at gpb.org or call 800-222-4788. One night this spring, a cybersecurity researcher stumbled upon a data set. It was from facial recognition cameras in Beijing. And as we started digging deeper into it, we realized people were effectively being watched. We had latitude and longitude for cameras, we had identity cards. How mass surveillance became part of the fabric of life in China this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. 
Join us for All Things Considered this afternoon from 4 to 6 here on GPB. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Tom uh, Faust always likes me to say, and I never say it enough, that if you are not at your radio at 2 o'clock but cannot get enough Political Rewind, subscribe to our podcast. It's easy enough to do. Or go to uh, gpb.org, find us uh, on the Programs tab there, or go to Politics GPB, and you will find the show. You can watch it even when we're not live on Facebook Live by just going to the GPB news page on Facebook. Lots of ways for you to engage with Political Rewind. Um, Kyle Hayes, you're up there in Washington. You don't have to worry right now, at least, about paying for the Georgia Power Bill that comes to the doors of many of us here. Uh, But uh, tomorrow we're going to see a very important rate case heard at the PSC. Uh, Georgia Power, and this has been going on for quite a while now, is asking for a rate hike that between the actual increases on the bill and extra fees amounts to some $2 billion, about a $200 a year hike for the average residential customer. Kyle, your thoughts? Well, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. I've actually been struck in the reporting that I've read that the Public Service Commission seems pretty skeptical of Georgia Power's case here. Um, Georgia Power says that they need this rate increase to pay for damage from Hurricane Michael from uh, disposal of coal ash, which is a a byproduct of electricity production, and then uh, revenue to make uh, investments in infrastructure. It does appear that the Public Service Commission is being skeptical of this and is trying to, for instance, get Georgia Power to not do a rate hike over a several-year period. I believe it's three or four years, but instead to do it in shorter chunks so that they can then come back and actually see if these costs match up what Georgia Power's projections are. Um, But it sounds like it will be a lot of money for ratepayers if this rate increase was to go through. The estimates I saw were two to three hundred dollars a year for ratepayers. That's a lot of money. Rusty, do do your citizens there in Sandy Springs do they call the mayor's office about things like how much they're paying Georgia Power, or do they know to go past you? Please don't suggest that. Um, (laughs) I get enough interesting calls already from people who don't understand the layers and levels of government. But this this is you know I was I was struck in reading. The, the reporting on it, that uh, the spokesman for Georgia Power discussed their exemplary record. I'm not sure he was referring to Plant Vogel when he said that. And I can tell you that, uh, you know, a lot of the – and the other part is, is Georgia Power is asking for a profit level that exceeds the national level. Right, right. And those are troublesome. Uh, you've had a, a totally mismanaged project over near Augusta that's costing – the ratepayers ultimately billions, and those those in costs advance, had, in advance in advance, but it's going to be added on at some point in the future to these rates that are already going in, uh, and then to have a higher rate than normal at a time when other regulators are saying maybe the utilities have a uh, you know maybe too much of a profit level. I think this one bears more scrutiny. Georgia Power and the PSC have had this little cat and mouse game going on. Georgia Power asks for a big rate increase, and then the Public Service Commission comes in and cuts it, and everybody walks away happy. Uh, I don't think anybody's going to walk away happy if if uh, they approve anything close to what Georgia Power yeah, is asking. A, a, couple, a couple more points, Bill. Uh, number one, uh, 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 the Senate designee, uh, Kelly Leffler, sits on the board of Georgia Power which is kind of an, an interesting situation. I, I'm wondering whether she's going to still be on that board come January 1. Uh, and then the, the other part, this uh, PSC vote on the Georgia Power Raid is supposed to uh, happen Tuesday. On Thursday, Atlanta Gas and Light uh, comes up before for their own rate increase request. Um, Jen, I don't have it right in front of me, but right before we came uh, in the studio to do the show, I got a news release from an organization which monitors utility rates across the country. And uh, their headline on the on the release they sent to uh, me says that Georgia already is in like the, one of the top states for the cost of utilities to uh, citizens of the state. Um, give us your take on this. Well, I think um, Rusty kind of, you know, I just want to reemphasize this, what we're talking about in terms of the rate increases this week in that request in the the possible $200 to the average consumer, that does not include 
plant Vogel, Vogel. Yeah. at all. Um, and, you know, Georgia Power is being very tight-lipped about exactly what those numbers are going to look like in the future. And I'll tell you what, I was wondering in terms of uh, Georgia Power, and I was like, well, you know, kind of what's going on with them? Why are they asking for this? And I pulled their SEC filings. And they say year-to-date 2019 net income was $1.6 billion compared to $621 million for the corresponding period in 2018. So from 2018 to 2019, their income has gone up astronomically. And then they're going to come in here and ask for these rate increases? It doesn't that, seem right. I, I can't even imagine, frankly— how you have an increase like uh, that in terms of your income. That's astonishing. They they attributed it to more retailers. They attributed it to an extra hot summer. There's all these kind of things. But they're making money. And, you know, they're going to have to they're going to have to answer some questions. We, we've, we have to deal with Georgia Power on utility re- relocations all the time. And I can tell you there's not a more arrogant group of people to deal with in those, in, in those situations. When we redid our city center, the city springs, they, only they could do the electrical work, re, relocating the, the electrical. They gave us a one-sheet breakout with one number. They said, this is what it's going to cost. Well, we need a breakout. I'm sorry, we don't break those numbers out. You know, if I took that bid from anybody else, I would go to jail. But they just gave us a bottom line number with no breakouts, no backup numbers. So they, they finally agreed to break it out. So we got a one-pager that said, labor materials bottom line number. We never got an explanation of oh, how much does this stuff cost? And can we go get somebody else? The answer, no, you can't go get anybody else, and this is what we charge. Boom. And then the public service, I tried to get the public service commission involved. And I hate to say it, they were useless, absolutely useless in trying to get information. The, the word I got back from my commissioner was, well, the staffs looked at it, and then George Power is generally pretty accurate about these costs. It, 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 I would not be able to accept that, that explanation from any other vendor in this state if I were taking bids on work to be done with the public dollar. Uh, Kyle, I think we started the conversation with you making the point that the PSC show f- so far has shown some real skepticism about this uh, increase, but it remains to be seen when rubber hits the road tomorrow how they'll respond to George. I don't think they're going to have one choice. I think they're going to have multiple options for uh, doing something. So we're going to have to wait and see how this all comes together, Kyle. Yeah, we will. And I think... You know, the biggest thing to remember here is that these rate cre- these rate increases fall particularly hard on people with lower incomes <clears throat> and that Georgia Power is seeking in at least one aspect of their proposal to in- to increase the flat rate per bill and they are arguing that that is the easiest way to do it on people with low incomes. So it'll be interesting to see if the Public Service Commission actually pushes them off like specific proposals and tries to demonstrate that they've protected ratepayers or particular segments of ratepayers in some certain way. Uh, because when candidates run against incumbent public service commissioners, they, and that we saw this in the 2018 elections, they are often very critical of the PSC not putting more pressure on Georgia Power. All right. Well, I just got a note while we were in the middle of the show from Tim Eccles, PSC commissioner, saying, sure, he'll stop by and explain the vote. <laughs> so you can look forward. And Tim, by the way, has been one of the real skeptics uh, in terms of this rate increase. So uh, he'll come in tomorrow and tell us uh, how the vote went down and what it all means. Um, Jim, can we talk for a few minutes uh, before the break Your column Sunday, I was trying to figure out before I read your column why Senator David Perdue decided he wanted to plunge into this controversy started by the state of California, which uh, passed a law that college athletes can get remunerations for uh, for their their uh, for licensing arrangements with their jerseys, that sort of thing for autographs for college. Paying college athletes, and now David Perdue's jumped into a, a study group, I guess, in Washington. It's it's a study group headed up by by uh, Mitt Romney uh, on the Republican side, Chris Murphy of Connecticut on the Democratic side. Uh, it's also got Marco Rubio, who played a little college ball, and and of course uh, uh, Cory Booker, uh, the senator from from New Jersey, uh, presidential candidate. Uh, okay, yes. <clears throat> okay, here's the timeline: California 
passes and and uh, and the governor signs uh, that bill that you mentioned that allows uh, uh, athletes in California to to be remunerated. Okay, all right. Georgia's got its own uh, Billy Mitchell in in Georgia here over at Stone Mountain. He's 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 filed uh, another bill, as have twenty other people. But the most important thing that I think that happened between uh, September and now is Ron DeSantis. The governor of Florida Mm -hmm. says he likes the idea. He wants a bill. Okay. Now you tell me if 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 the University of Florida is going to start letting athletes, high school athletes, you know, earn their money, what do you think the University of Georgia is going to want to do? How many University of Georgia graduates are on this panel today? I know you are. Are you the only Jed Jordan, Jim Galloway? Are you Kyle? I am. I'm a Eugene. All right. So you all understand why David Perdue does not want University of Florida to get an edge on Georgia, I assume. (laughs) But, yeah, he's he's calling it an arms race, you know, basically. Well, I mean, then you look at, like, give Saban that power. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, the coaches already complained that they recruit, he drafts. And you give give that to the University of Alabama or LSU or any of those other – it's – that would be where I'd be checking my cache of ten foot poles. I'd want to keep that as far away from me as <laughs> Jen, possible. Jen, what do you what do you make of all this? Look, I'm a little incredulous. Um, with everything that's happening in this country, in terms of student loan debt, defaults, um, the cost of higher education, health care, all of these issues. You know, our senator decides to jump into you know the fight over whether or not you know um, we're going to you know, allow student athletes to to be given money one way or the other. And, you know, especially with the whole idea that it may be because of an arms race with Florida or some other SEC schools or whatever. Um, You know, I wish she would probably highlight some other issues. Well, I have a plaque in my my mountain cabin that says life is a game, but football is serious. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh, it is, uh, you know, if you, you, you want to get people fired up, uh, start talking about uh, the, the football, whether it's Georgia Tech, Auburn, Alabama, any of them. The passion that that can generate in a political environment is, is pretty high. So it's one of those, but it's fraught with danger. Yeah, and, but I, I will tell you, Bill, <clears throat> the solution is probably staring us in the face. I mean, Mitt Romney uh, is, is credited with saving the, 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 Olympics. The, the, the Olympics in Salt Lake City, the Winter Olympics. And that's an organization that over the last 20, 30 years has had to come to grips with 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 allowing uh, athletes to 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 uh, pocket a little bit of change, so they're they're not they're not they're not paupers outside the outside the playing fields. And and that's a real issue when you've got a lot of these young kids who come in from inner city. They have no money. They're sitting in their dorms on Friday night with you know all their friends are going out and they're stuck because they don't have any money and they got no way that the college can give them any money. Some of those things do need to be addressed. Well, wait, I. I, I have made tours of, Kyle, I don't know if you have, but I've been in some of the dormitories that elite athletes at places like Georgia get to live in, the kind of food that they're served. I mean, it, I, I, that's an interesting picture that Rusty just painted, Kyle. I have seen something that seems a little different than that. Well, John Calipari, the uh, Kentucky basketball coach, he used to tell this story that he was concerned about his players, when they go home for Christmas break and there's like a two or three week gap in the college basketball season, that they're not getting enough to eat at home because of the vulnerable vulnerable backgrounds that they're coming from and that his players would come back to school for the spring semester and the conference schedule underweight. So I think that there is something to the fact that you are given you are given some nice perks as a part of your scholarship, but that doesn't necessarily mean it covers all of your I, I costs. I think that's really a good yeah. point. And, Rusty, I really think that's more to the point that you were looking to make, which is that a, these, a lot of these kids are, in fact, from, from underprivileged They're, they're treated very nicely and, while they're on campus. But if their friends go out for, you know, get a burger or something, you know, they don't have any pocket change in a lot and, of and cases. These, these palaces are being built because there's so much money yeah. in, in college right. football. Absolutely. And, yeah. and there's nowhere else to put it except in those facilities. All right. And, Jen, you want your senator to work on issues that you think matter more is well, the point you're making. Look, I think that, that this is an important 
issue to talk about. I think athletes should be paid for the use of their name, image, and likeness. And we all remember the Todd Gurley kind of dust up a few years ago. Um, but it is interesting that this is one of the things that he decides to kind of step out on um, and actually talk to the press about in terms of the work he's doing. <laughs> right. So says Jen Jordan. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way. We'll be back in just a minute. Erin Dix says, I heard it on NPR a lot, so it gave her an idea. Every time I say that, I make a mark on my calendar and then add them up at the end of the year and donate that much to my local station. Erin's NPR tip jar is her way of giving back. It makes me smarter. It makes me more aware. It inspires me. Invest in the journalism that keeps you informed and inspired. Make a year-end gift today. Go to gpb.org and click donate. And thanks. On the next Fresh Air, actress Charlize Theron, who stars as former Fox News anchor Megyn Kelly in the new film Bombshell. She tells us about transforming herself physically for the role, and she'll talk about growing up on a farm in South Africa during apartheid and being raised by a strong mother. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 right here on GPB and online at gpbnews.org. We're back with a little more time left on Political Rewind. Uh, Peach Pods, Kyle Hayes, is with us from the NPR offices in uh, Washington. Mayor Rusty Paul of Sandy Springs, uh, State Senator Jen Jordan, and Jim Galloway are in the studio today. Uh, Jim, the uh, mayor of Houston, Teresa Kennerly, and Councilman Jim Cleveland, who were both facing recall votes uh, fairly soon, uh, have fallen on their swords, decided that they would rather go out on their own terms, and both have resigned as a result of an incident in which they were both caught making uh, remarks that uh, were considered racially offensive. Yeah, uh, the the mayor in specifically had 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 balked at at hiring a a city administrator on the grounds that he was African American, and that she said her community was not ready for that. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 then we, we have the councilman who, I mean, in many ways took this even further by talking about the fact that he opposes interracial marriage. Uh, I mean, it just it got to be a pretty awful. And, situation. It, and it's happening. Yeah. It's happening in a in a in a political uh, in political territory that's really up for grabs. Yeah. Uh, come uh, come come 2020. Rusty Paul, uh, did you, Teresa Kennerly, do you two interact at mayor's I, I conferences don't know, no, or anything? I don't know that I've ever met okay. her. Okay. But the, what comes to mind is Ron White's uh, admonition, you can't fix stupid. You know, it's uh, it's sad that in the, now the, going into the third decade of the 20th, 21st century that we, we're still dealing with this. You know, and obviously the mayor misjudged her constituency because apparently they ha- had enough signatures on the petition to, to hold the recall election. And that's not an easy thing to do. So, um, you know, it's sad. I think they did, to the extent that there's anything honorable that could be done, they're doing the honorable thing by by resigning. Uh, but uh, there's no place for that in, uh, in Georgia in 2019. Jen? Look, I think it, as a lawyer, I can lay it out pretty simply. Don't make hire de- hiring decisions based on race. Yeah. And if yeah. you do... Sure as heck shouldn't talk about it. I mean, it's one of these things where, I mean, this... they should have resigned long ago. And so at least now the, the community can it, move it, forward. It is interesting, Kyle, that this – I think Jen just made a really important point. This happened months and months ago. Uh, the recall was headed – it was clear a recall was uh, uh, building, and they've only done it now. And, and it does seem like it's taken much longer than it need to have, Kyle. And, you know, the community up there has got to, you know, to some extent heal after all this. Yeah, I think – to some extent, it might a few years ago, it might not have taken this long for a resignation, but I think that there is a reemergence in our politics of groups that es- espouse racial hatred in a way that there may have been feelings among people that there might have been a little more room for this than there was a few years ago, which I think is a very disappointing development. But yeah, it certainly seems like it took way too long for yeah, this to uh, be resolved. Plus, uh, yeah, plus we're, we're kind of in, in this uh, 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 Trumpish era where you can't backtrack. You cannot apologize for anything that you do. Uh, and, I, and I think that adds to it. It just it lends, lends, a, it lends a, a degree of stubbornness in, in certain situations. All right. Well, 
that situation is resolved, and um, we don't have to worry about that anymore. Uh, last couple of minutes in the show, Jim, uh, this week we expect, after going out to the state asking for comments about the Medicaid waivers that uh, the governor has uh, said he's going to submit to the federal government, got about a thousand public comments apparently, according to uh, news reports. And most of it's, they're finally apparently this week the Department of Community Health is going to sign off on uh, the camp waivers, which puts them in a position to do, they don't have, do, these don't they don't any longer require legislative approval. I've lost track of no. which way it goes. No, no, no. There they was don't, legis- right? there was, legis- <laughs> there was right. legislation passed that gave uh, Brian Kemp full control yes, yes. over over whatever whatever is it's pitched to the federal. So government. Uh, the Department of Community Health uh, signs off and it goes to Washington. The biggest complaint, Jim, uh, from people who commented apparently was uh, work requirements for Medicaid. Right, and that's and, and 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 quite frankly, that's 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 the 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 tallest legal hurdle that they probably have because it's 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 been rejected at every every front so far. Jen, yeah, look, I mean, it's you put that in there, and then it's going to be um, challenged in the courts, and then we're just going to go longer and longer where people aren't getting care in this state. I mean, look, I've got a lot of problems with the waivers, but with respect to that, if you know that you're going to have a problem right out of the box, why do you do that if you're actually trying to get a policy over the line? Yeah. Well, what you've got going on, and this is not just a Georgia issue, this is across the whole country. Right now, education and health care take up 85% of the state budget, and the fastest growing piece of that is health care, and it's crowding out everything else. And every state, and it's not just a Georgia problem, it's happening all across the country, everybody's trying to figure out how to get their arms around the cost of health care. And so what you've got is a probing action by the states, seeing how far they can go that the feds will allow them to go. And so this is part of a probing action. He's taken some of the things that other states have had rejected, taken those off the table. There's also the component that they've added that adds, allows you not only if you're not working, you can volunteer and fulfill that. So they're trying to figure out where that where that acceptable level for the feds is so that they can get their arms around the cost. This is a cost-driven problem, and uh, every state's trying to deal with it. Yeah, yeah, but but one of the best ways to get your arms around the cost is go after the money and right. the people who are getting it. Yeah, but the problem is that, you, you know, you never know when the feds are going to cut that. That was Nathan Deal's problem with it from the very beginning as far as the expanding Medicaid. And, it's been uh, the Republican argument in any of the states. Well, where it's, they it's not just been. a Republican argument; it's a practical argument. All right, I, I'm sorry, I got to cut off the conversation because uh, they've already started playing our music to tell us that we are out of time for this show. But I do have enough time to tell you that uh, Karen Owen, who is on this show, a political science professor out of West Georgia University, sent us an email. She says that the 1965 Voter Rights Act det- determined preclearance on the basis of less than 50% of the state's voting age population was registered in November of 1964, or that less than 50% of the voting age population in the 64 uh, presidential election cast ballot. So that was how it was determined way back then. And uh, now we're looking at the potential for a House bill that might restore some preclearance. We'll see how that all works out. Uh, Kyle Hayes, Mayor Rusty Paul, State Senator Jen Jordan, Jim Galloway, thank you for being here today. I want to set on the record, we didn't talk about impeachment even once, but we will, I'm sure, before the week is out. See you all tomorrow at 2.